0: Welcome back to Transmissions. You are hearing some of Wordless Chorus by My Morning Jacket, which is one of the many pieces of music produced, recorded, engineered, or mixed by our guest this week, John Leckie. As a tape operator at Abbey Road in 1970, he oversaw early solo works by uh, most of the solo Beatles, including All Things Must Pass, uh, the Plastic Ono Band, McCartney, uh, he rolled tape at Pink Floyd's Metal Sessions and later he worked with Fela Kuti and Afro 70, Kevin Ayers, Ornette Coleman, and Soft Machine, among many, many others. He got into producing with Bebop Deluxe and went on to do work with groups like Felt, The Fall, Stone Roses, he did Radiohead's The Bends, Los Lobos, Dr. John, and so many more. Uh, Lucky is a truly legendary behind the scenes guy a true innovator and it's really really an incredible honor to have him here on transmissions big thanks to luther russell of those pretty wrongs uh with big stars jody stevens who hooked me up with Lucky and said that this was the guy that i needed to talk to and boy he was very very correct all right. Well, uh, without further ado, let's head in uh, to my conversation with John Lecky. Thanks so much for tuning in to Transmissions. It's great to have you here. Uh, remember that uh, you can just hit the share button on this and get the word out. It really helps us. So uh, here's my conversation with John. I hope you enjoy it. I'll speak with you more on the other side.
1: Hey John! Hiya. There we go. How are you? All right. Can you hear me? I can. Good. It's great to
0: <laughs> great to see you this morning. Well, it's afternoon for you, right? Evening.
1: It is. It's five o'clock. Yeah, five in the afternoon. Yeah. Nice. Well. And are you in Arizona? I am. Fantastic. Where Whereabouts? Uh, I live in Phoenix. Ah, I never been there. Yeah,
0: have you been to other parts of Arizona?
1: Oh yeah, I've been to Flagstaff, Grand mm-hmm. Canyon, Monument Valley, done the whole uh, the whole trip. <laughs> nice, but, but never got never got south to Phoenix because uh, you know it's a bit far. Well, when did we go to oh, Sedona and that's all Arizona isn't isn't that did oh, the whole trip from yeah. Las Vegas a week round? Yeah, nice. I want to go back.
0: Yeah, it's. I mean, you're talking about some of the most beautiful places on the earth, and I'm. I know I'm biased because I live here, but. Uh, yeah, Flag, you know, Flag is Flagstaff is so gorgeous. Sedona's definitely one of those otherworldly places.
1: Yeah, yeah. Well, we're pretty good out here. I'm in the Chilterns. So I'm like uh, the hills near nothing like nothing like where you are. Sure. But uh, it's like halfway to Oxford, so I'm between London and Oxford and there's some hills of chalk. It's all chalk hills Um, and, hmm. uh, and there's an ancient footpath track, it's actually called the Ridgeway Footpath, and it goes from uh, Bath, like Bath in the West Country, Bristol Bath, yeah, and goes about, I don't know, two or three hundred miles all the way up across uh, southern England and up to the North Sea. And it's not a Roman road; it's a footpath. Um, you can still walk it, you know. Yeah, it's a, it follows the chalk basically. It's a chalk escarpment. So, you know, in the old days, if you if you walk and there's white chalk underfoot, you know you're going the right way. You know, right. you just keep going. So that's the ancient footpath is the chalk escarpment. And we live just up there, so we got views and everything. Yeah.
0: Well, that's great. Yeah, sounds, sounds beautiful, and that's helpful, knowing you're going the right direction. <laughs>
1: uh, usually, yeah, you <laughs> purposely want to get lost, you know.
0: Yeah, which I guess there's some value in that, too. Well, John, thanks so much for taking the time to join us here on Transmissions. It's a, it's a real honor to have you here.
1: That's great. Are we doing video, or this is it, yeah?
0: Yeah, it'll just be audio. Um, oh, okay. But I like to have the video on for you and I, so that I can, you know. Of course, yeah. Know, yeah. Feels a little bit more personal, almost like doing it in, in real life. Not quite. No. Anyway, yeah,
1: good. and of course you're a friend of Luther, aren't you? Luther's yeah, yeah. Lu- Luther
0: Ooh, Luther, God, Luther is Luther's great, and obviously he's sung your praises a lot. And then looking over your discography, it's mind blowing all the
1: stuff that <laughs> you've worked on. Does it feel that way for you too? That's uh, it is. I got to warn you because people do interviews with me, and of course, it goes on for hours, or they have to do a part two. We talk for a few hours, and then it's like, oh my god, we've only gone halfway through. You know, we haven't. We're only in the eighties. You know, that's right. <laughs>
0: yeah, it's it's funny too. This show goes an hour, so I I have already thought, well, we might have to do a part two, but um, but that's that's that's, See what happens, that's always what welcome.
1: <laughs> whatever you feel, you know. Whatever you, whatever we get into, I don't know. <laughs> Sounds great. Well,
0: I think what I wanted to start off with is basically you—you you studied uh, uh, media basically in school, right? With the idea to be a film director. Uh,
1: uh, I suppose so, yeah.
0: <laughs> or at least, or at least, sort of the intention of of, of being involved yeah. in, in in screen, film, or
1: TV or something. Yeah.
0: Yeah. But it didn't quite work out that way, uh, so so you instead ended up at Abbey Road in the early seventies, uh, and and I guess what I wanted to ask was, how did you get a gig at Abbey Road? You know, without much studio
1: experience,
0: how how did, how did that work out?
1: Um, I wrote a letter really I, I got frustrated because I couldn't get a job there's a film union here you know and so you, you I couldn't get a job unless I was in the union and you couldn't get in the union unless you had a job and I thought oh my god what shall I do and um and I thought I know I'd like to work in a recording studio you know and I'm not a musician you know I've never played in a band I can I can play some piano and a few guitar chords, but I'm not really a musician and certainly not a songwriter or anything like that. And, um, I don't know. I just got the job. I did do a thesis at, at college on electronic music. It was actually called the art of noises. Mm. And, uh, I, I've still got it. It's all handwritten in pen and ink, you know? Wow. And, um, this was 1968 and I was at college and I was really into, stockhausen and the moog synthesizer and you know switched on bark and what was walter carlos at that time and just synthesizers and general music really um and uh of course it was getting electronic and part of my thesis was this idea of stockhausen electronics and oscillators and filters but also jimi hendrix and pink floyd and guitar pedals, the wah-wah pedal, you know, to me it was an electronic instrument, you know, and of course in 1968, all these things had just been invented, you know, and I was 18 and I was just into any of that. And, um, I wrote letters to the studios in London and there was only a few, you know, there was EMI, Decca, Olympic. I think I wrote five letters and Abbey Road answered and gave me the job, you know, and, um, and that was it. And From then on, it was nonstop studio. You know, for how many years? For fifty years, it's yeah, uh, yeah, it's uh, studio and sleep.
0: <laughs> I, I listened to an interview with you, and and you said that uh, you took that job, and and that was that was pretty much all you did. You know, I think you said something like you worked a hundred and fifty hours a week in the studio, or so. I, I don't remember exactly how you put it, but yeah. a lot of time. You know,
1: so, yeah, yeah, more. Than that, yeah.
0: So you were interested in the sort of expanding uh, uh, the the electronic element that was sort of being introduced, which allowed people like Wendy Carlos and others, you know, to to create essentially brand new sounds. So there was sort of right from the jump for you an interest in, you know, uh, tinkering is the wrong is the wrong word, but experimentation and and applying new new layers. Yeah, that was that was there for you right away.
1: And also because that music, I mean, call it psychedelic, but it was, it was visual. You know, you listen to those music. I know, you know, like yeah. LSD or something, but psychedelic <laughs> music always gave you pictures of films in your mind. So here I was, I couldn't be a film director, but maybe I could be a record producer and make records like Pink Floyd and Jimi Hendrix and, you know, all those bands, United States of America, that band on CBS and, um, you know, as well as, as well, love, as, well as the, I love the that record. Yeah I, oh, lo- yeah.
0: I love that, the United States of America record. I think coming down, which starts with that incredible fuzz riff is just such a, mm. yeah,
1: it gives me chills. Well, they, 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 that, that was like, I mean, this is before Eno and Roxy music, but it right. was this idea of, okay, I'm, I can't, I'm not a musician. I can't sing. I can't play guitar i can twiddle not you know i can yeah. twiddle knobs <laughs> um yeah you know so and the united states of america gave that idea and the and pink floyd to some extent because you never knew how they made the sounds whether it was a synthesizer or whether it was a a messed up guitar or something or a piano you know a messed up piano you know sure um so i I loved all i you know that's kind of what my inspiration was i suppose um and of course when i started in the studio i didn't get an opportunity for that because i was a tape operator and so you're you're working as a service to the musicians in in, in the studio that you're working for you know so right um as far as uh you know you could experiment and mess around when the studio was not working and those kind of things and and of course you had no spare time at home, you know. It wasn't like I had a studio at home or could sit around for a weekend and you know, and build a a synth you know, build a machine and
0: right. experiment, you know. Right.
1: Because I was working seven days a week, you know. Yeah.
0: Well, so some of your first gigs as a tape operator, I mean, you sort of start working on legendary records right away. Of course they weren't legendary records yet, because they didn't exist, but uh I, I think about how You're working on All Things Must Pass, the Plastic Ono Band records, uh, Sid Barrett. But as a tape operator, did that mean that you were more or less witness to everything that that happened in the studio? Were you just sort of sitting there, basically absorbing all of it?
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. The tape operator basically... I didn't make tea. I didn't fix microphones or anything. You know, I operated the tape. So from the start of the session, you sat there and um, ran tape. And when someone shouted stop, you you stopped. Or you you. The main thing was you assess what the power structure in the room was. Because if someone if the band's playing and someone says stop, and you stop, and then the singer or the drummer said, what'd you stop for? Why did you stop? Because, you know, and so you work out whether the producer is producing the record or whether the guitarist is producing the record. And when someone gives you an instruction like stop, do you do you stop? Or do you carry on knowing that (laughs) this person isn't, you know, isn't uh, the the person in charge, you know, that or sounds... you learn yourself, or they say, oh, it's a good job you didn't stop because we got a good take, you know. Yeah, that so sounds you learn how, slightly how precarious.
0: Yeah, slightly precarious, a little bit.
1: Yeah, you have to you have to be on your toes. You know, you have to be aware of what's going on the room on in the room, and mm-hmm. you study people's relationships within the band and the structure, the power structure in the room. Really, whether the producer is producing or whether the keyboard player's producing, you know, and, yeah, and, you know, and when you, you know, you get into arguments with the band or discussions, let's not say arguments, <laughs> but discussions with, the, with uh, within the band and you, you observe all that and act accordingly, you know, right? Uh, and, right. but you don't have a, cre- you know, as a tape op, you don't really have a creative input, you know, people say, okay, because I've just done interviews about the Plastic Ono band, because they've just brought out the the box set and, yeah, it's incredible. Done a lot of uh, talk about that, and everyone seems to think I, you know, because I was in the room with John Lennon, I had deep philosophical discussions with John Lennon. But it wasn't really like that, you know. No. Um, you know, I, I mean, obviously we had we had talk, but we didn't have conversations or anything. Yeah. Deep. I didn't really have a creative input as as such, but that all came later, I think, or it was, you know, I, I was in training, as you could say.
0: Yeah. Well, I'm curious. So when I think about All Things Must Pass, that's All Things Must Pass is one of my all-time favorite records. I think it's probably one of the best things ever recorded. But you're talking about the power structure. And obviously, George coming out of the Beatles with just a boatload of songs and more coming and jams that were happening in the studio. He had a very defined vision for what he wanted and is known for being a very exacting person, at least certainly with that record. But then you've also got Phil Spector in the room who could be known uh to be exacting or worse depending on uh <laughs> what era we're talking about. But I- no. I'm curious who who felt like uh did you get a sense that that George was firmly in charge of that one or was Phil no, firmly in charge?
1: I'd say Phil Spector was in charge, yeah. George kind of he didn't let it happen but he, he, in a way he did let it happen. And of course there was, there was something he didn't like. It's, it'd speak up, but no, Phil Spector, what could I say? Arranged the parts. He arranged the musicians. He, um, uh, he, he chose the take, you know, you could say what a producer does. He chooses the right take, you know, that's what I kind of learned from those sessions was how to choose the right take. If you're going to mm. record the same song 40 or 50 times, you know, is take four the best or is take 38 the best, you know? So, right. you know, I'm yeah. sitting at the back thinking, oh no, they're going to do another one. Why was, what was wrong with the last one? And <laughs> of course, you know, you're, with a producer, you're, you, you are in charge, you're in charge of getting a good performance. And if you don't think the performance is up to it, you do another take. And on the other hand, the first take might be the best and you go, okay, that's it. We don't need to do anymore. So they're the kind of that's kind of what I what I learned from doing those sessions. What what um, do you what do you listen for in a
0: take? I mean so eventually you you make your way from tape op to to engineer and then uh producer with Bebop Deluxe. Um but what are you what are you listening for in a ta- in a take or you know
1: um magic really always listening for magic you yeah. know and performance. Yeah, you're listening for something a little something special depending on the ability of the musicians and how much you know the band of whether they're capable of going a little bit further or whether that's the best you're going to get or um you're, you're always listening for magic and the best performance and you know particularly you know it's different now where well it's different now where the, where you have click tracks you know everyone's on a computer and you kind of think well that's okay because we can edit it edit Mm -hmm. it on the pro tools or you know you've got this click going on and the grid and that kind of stuff so it's kind of different unfortunately now you know but you know even you 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 can choose to do that or you can choose to do a live performance by by a live performance i don't mean in front of an audience i just mean without a click and with people playing one thing i did learn i suppose is that there's more chance of magic with the more people in the room playing you know and if you've got A four-piece band you know guitar bass drums and keyboards or something it's better if you all play together you know and and the singer of course what's called the guide vocal you know sometimes the guy the the singer in a band says oh i don't need to do anything because you're just doing a backing track it's like no man you're in charge of the backing track you're going to sing the vocal yeah like it's your best performance because that's going to inspire the rest of the band you know
0: to create Um, that energy in the room while there's like that interplay happening
1: yeah, yeah. all the best records all the greatest records of all time are recorded like that you yeah. know they're not it's very rarely you know you listen to the stones whatever you think is the best records of all time whether it's the stones the beatles the who or or well i won't say you know pink floyd but most of them they're recorded with the the vocalist in the room and yeah you know i often say that the vocal the vocal is the click track really that's like, what's the tempo? It's the tempo of what the singer's singing the the tune at, you know? Yeah, yeah. Um, so, um, yeah, that's, that's the kind of things, things that I learned and took away with me from all that time. And, you know, um, and, of course, as I say, it's different with the computer now. Of course, you can do anything everything. You you kind of think, well, that's, that's almost magic, but with a few edits in Pro Tools and a bit of copy <laughs> and paste. We'll, <laughs> we'll get it there. We'll get it there. Well,
0: so you also mentioned already the Plastic Ono band sessions. Uh, were those pretty intense sessions? I think back on what I know about those records and – John was doing primal scream therapy. Obviously, Yoko is a very dynamic and adventurous vocalist. Uh, did you get a sense at that time that what was happening was pretty uh powerful or or, you
1: know, even pushed into the red a little bit? Uh, yeah, the content and the songs, of course. But the general vibe in the studio with Plastic Ono Band was was happy, was joy and, you know, was a, a joy of playing. And, you know, and there's John with two of his best friends, Ringo and Klaus Foreman, yeah. and keeping it, even Phil Spector was, you know, Phil Spector wasn't there all the time. He kind of creeped in halfway through. But right. um, John obviously had a lot of respect for Phil because he, you um, he uh you know he put him down as the producer but it's interesting because with this box set of course they 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 print all the tape boxes which i you know 50 years ago i scribbled out the tape boxes and yeah. all the tapes and the dates and the timings and the track sheet as well because it's only eight track the track sheet is written on the tape box next to each title and it's all in my scrawly handwriting yeah and um you can see what was done and the progression of all the sessions day by day really it's a it's a fascinating document actually i'm so pleased that they printed those tape boxes because you can learn you can learn a lot from what what was going on there and yeah. of course there's lots of jam sessions you know in between doing uh i wouldn't say working class hero but in between doing remember or god god is a concept mm. he'd go off and play you know as soon as they come to the end of a take they start playing chuck berry or they start <laughs> doing debop lula and right John, you know and they all join in because you, you know, can
0: listen to those uh, uh those elvis presley impressions that he does uh on on the box right. set yeah hmm. Well so eventually you you made your way over to the engineering side of things, and uh, was metal by Pink Floyd the first the first record that you engineered, or did you, had you done some stuff before that?
1: I'd done a few things. I'd worked with um Roy Harper, who's uh, who was on Harvest. They were I was lucky at Abbey Road because they had a label called Harvest, which was kind of the underground label. So they had artists like Roy Harper, Edgar Broughton Band, Kevin Ayers. Uh, third-year band um and they all came well they all worked at abbey road you know they all yeah. were in uh, in abbey road studios even though <laughs> even though they're a bunch of improvising hippies really i mean they were playing free concerts at stonehenge and you know smoking <laughs> right. and this kind of thing and it was uh you know but emi believed in them and they did album after album they must have been signed for like six albums or something and um there were also late night sessions, which was great because they'd all stay up, you know, start about four in the afternoon and finish at four or five, six in the morning, wow. um, which was kind of, uh, unheard of and a lot of other engineers at Abbey Road didn't want to stay up till midnight even, you know, they, they wanted to go home at six o'clock. And, and so there was me and a few other young guys, you know, and we'd, we'd be very keen to get on and be engineers. So, and, um, yeah, so I'd, I'd done a few sessions within my first year. I think I'd done Edgar Broughton Band and Roy Harper. And, um, and then with Pink Floyd Medal, we recorded January 1971. So I hadn't even been there a year. I'd been there like 10 months and wow. um, started with Medal, and uh, it was 8-track. So Abbey Road at the time was just 8-track. And we recorded all the, I don't know if you know the story of metal, but they didn't really have, they had a few songs and basically they had a few ideas, quite a lot of ideas, actually. Um, and we recorded each idea and called it Nothing. And I think that came about because I would say to one of the band, Nick Mason, I'd go, oh, what's this song called? And he would go, just call it Nothing. You know, so it was <laughs> Nothing Part One, Nothing Part Two, Nothing Part Three. And... <laughs> And then they went away and came back with what's called Echoes, you know, which is side two of metal, the whole lengthy piece, which was all those ideas, all those nothings put together. Yeah. And we basically filled up the eight tracks and then we went to air studios. So in London at the time, I think the only 1971, there was only air and Trident that was 16 track. Everything else was eight track. And so we went to air studios, Uh, because they had 16 track and I went, the engineer was a guy called Peter bound who did Piper at the gates of dawn, did Beatles records. He was a great engineer and he always let me do things. You know, sometimes he'd go go home early or something, you know, he'd look at his watch and go, Oh, it's it's eight o'clock. There's something on television. I need to, I want to see. So (laughs) you carry on and we got to air studios and he'd never worked a Neve mixer or, or a 16 track, you know, the big tapes, big tapes and stuff so he said and i was really keen and you know to learn and he said oh uh, I, th- I think i'll go back to abbey road and see you know you carry on here you know and left me with the floyd for i can't remember whether it was two weeks or three weeks and um so i did all the recording i never did the mixing for medals so basically we filled up the other eight tracks with we did one of these days um, various household objects the legendary yeah. household objects sessions and did all the guitars and the vocals on Echoes, and um, and that was I, I I was you know that was my engineering yeah. start really. Um, uh, so it was quite a quite a thing. And you got of course the Floyd at the time were an underground group. They weren't huge. They weren't mega. And I think they'd done an American tour, but this had come after Atom Heart Mother, which was. You know, I don't know if it was a, f- a failure at a mark. Mother, it was a bit strange. Sure. But they'd also done film soundtracks. You know, they'd done the Brisky Point right. and more music for film, more. So they were quite into uh, well experimenting. You know, searching for sounds and and music in the studio, writing in the studio, really. You know, uh,
0: uh, you you talk about these well. That must have appealed to your your experimental inclinations, the sort of the idea that you had going in, like let's make some some new sounds. So I'm sure that was thrilling. But I'm curious oh. when we're talking about all night sessions and we're we're sort of uh, burning the candle at both ends and going a long time, uh, did that impress upon you almost a need for patience in a studio uh, to sort of let things happen? Uh, yeah. as a producer you know is that a skill that comes in pretty handy sort of understanding when you need to give them space and then when you need to cut it off and yeah. say let's get on with it you know that sort of thing
1: yeah exactly that yeah that's what you that's that's what you learn to 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 do like let let the magic happen and um you know give them space to do things yeah yeah yeah, exactly yeah.
0: That's, that's so fascinating. A, a couple of years later, Fela Kuti came in to, to Abbey Road. That's right, yeah. What, had you, were you sort of already familiar with Afrobeat, or was that more or less your introduction to
1: that style? um it was really and it wasn't again i was a tape up on that i don't know what the year was 72 73 or something yeah um so i was still a tape up there was a guy called tony clark who um not tony clark that did the moody blues this was another guy and he actually did wings the first wings album, but loads of other stuff you know yeah um and he but he went out to nigeria to lagos and came back and said, Oh man, you have to hear the music. You have to hear the kuti and, um, King Sunny Addy, King Sunny Addy. And all these bands were signed to EMI cause EMI had a record label in, and a studio in Lagos. Yeah. And, um, he came back from Lagos after a month working there and said, man, you've got to hear this music. And, and fella came over. And of course the ginger Baker connection. And, um, did the did the record in in the studio? I think it was two days, and we did two albums. You know, I mean, basically, wow. you you set the band up and let them play until the tape runs out. You know, yeah. Put a new reel of tape on, and they play for thirty minutes, and then you you tell everyone they've got to stop because we run out of tape. You know. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So, talk um, about
0: the magic happening though. In that case, I mean, you must it just those performances must have just been so locked in and so so groove oh, yeah. focused. You know, tremendous mm-hmm.
1: stuff. Yeah, it was great. And, and, and luckily for me, so my Nigerian thing, What other other Nigerian acts would come over. Um, there's a guy called Sonny Ockerson, uh, Ozzy Didi, and I did two albums as an engineer. There was a producer called hmm. odian Niroji. So they would come over for a weekend, like fly from Nigeria to London, and um, turn up with no instruments. So on yeah. a Saturday morning, they'd basically booked, Book Saturday and Sunday, and a Saturday morning. That I'd turn up at the studio, and they'd be waiting outside. and And I go, and I go "Well, where's your equipment?" They're, oh no, we need to rent the equipment. <laughs> you have <They're> to rent <laughs> everything, you know, yeah, um, yeah, conga drums and things. And um, and you just record nonstop, and you stay up. Well, we didn't stay up for forty eight hours, but um, you know, long sessions, and- yeah, yeah. And it was great, and kind of got on well with them and then <laughs> and then um what was it about 1980 i'd actually left abbey road and i had a call from ken townsend the manager and he said oh um in in nigeria they've just gone from eight track to 24 track and they asked if you could go over there and show them how it works you know and i said yeah i'd love to you know so th- there i so there i was in lagos nigeria and um, as almost the the engineer in the studio, so whoever turned up, and they all wanted to work with the white man. You know? <laughs> and and uh, you know, whoever turned up, I would record, and it would be everything. Fellow, fellow, of course, didn't turn up, but there was lots of other you could say Afrobeat, yeah, jazz people uh Christian uh, gos- gospel choirs, yeah. Wow. I don't know if it's gospel. It's not like American gospel, but sure, you know, it's much more. The whole village would would come on the bus, you know. Yeah, and all the, all the ladies would be dressed in white in their Sunday best to record, you know. Wow. um And I don't know if you know the story of. EMI well EMI the gramophone company there was a uh, someone called Fred Geisberg so back in 1898 (laughs) Fred Mm. Geisberg works for um uh not Thomas Edison what's the other guy's name I've forgotten his name now but he you know invented the the gramophone really and he came to England and started what's called the gramophone company which was um the, the forerunner of of EMI yeah and um and basically then and, and set up uh, r- the, the uh, factories to manufacture records but also they made the hardware which was the gramophone which was the wind-up gramophone and the 78 disc and um he then traveled and of course they had no catalog this is right at the beginning of the the of the recording um industry yeah industry really and so he traveled the world um Trying to find catalog and set up uh, uh, the gramophone company in France, which became Pathé Marconi, Um, even in Russia, which was Melodia Disc. He set up uh, a whole factory uh, recording industry business with factory and the studios in Russia and just before the russian revolution 19 what is that it's 1917 yeah. he had to go off to russia and re- re- retrieve everything because the the revolution was happening you know yeah <laughs> uh, But he also traveled and all those recordings that he did are still available we're still all in the emi well i suppose it's universal now universal music archive right but, um he also went to china and in and in india that's why bombay there's an emi in bombay there's an abbey road in bombay An abbey road in in uh, lagos nigeria all the british commonwealth countries you know he, he right. went around malaya singapore even to australia and um china you know and he recorded all these all, the, all this music just to and wrote diaries and everything and you can still hear those those things and so the the lagos studio had been there since 1910 yeah yeah <laughs> yeah so uh it's quite a quite a, a story a trip all that emi I and mean, of course when it closed down when it all got sold emi uh you know they bought Capitol records in 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 in, in usa but um and also South America and Rio you know and um, uh, but all those um, all those all those records um, you know are still available and everything.
0: Yeah I mean that's obviously the 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 beauty of the recording arts you know is being able to preserve and document this stuff and and to have yeah. a have yeah. a way to uh, listen in to these moments yeah. in time, you know
1: which yeah. is really, Tr- the, fasc- the fascinating thing is, um, before that, the only way you could hear music was to be in the room. Mm-hmm. You know, music before the recorded, the technology to record music. The only way you could hear music was to be present. Right. You know, to be there in the room, in front of the musicians, to hear it. You know, you couldn't. You couldn't dial up a song or put a record on or, you know, or, yeah. or re- hear any music unless you were in the presence of a musician. So it was a great thing, this um, recorded sound, you know? Yeah,
0: yeah. Well, as you mentioned already, your career is so vast and so, so, uh, so encompassing that there's no way we're going to be able to cover it all. But I do want to, <laughs> I have a few things I want to pop through. Um, okay. I'll, I'll
1: keep the answer short. <laughs>
0: <laughs> well, as the 70s, you know, you're talking about sort of the, the 80s being in, in Lagos, you know, early 80s. Before that, there's this moment that happens in the late 70s where you're recording a lot of varied groups. You know, Public Image, Magazine, XTC, The Adverts, Simple Minds. And I'm thinking about how there's all this different stuff going on. Some of it was labeled punk. Some of it was probably thought of as New Wave. Maybe the term art rock was still probably being used quite a lot to describe some of this stuff, but one of the things that I'm really interested in is you. You worked on this great record with the XTC guys uh, under a sort of band pseudonym, Dukes of Stratosphere, and I love yeah. I love those that record, that first one especially. Uh, I like the others, but. I was curious for you, you had been there for the birth of Psychedelia or really the the heyday of it. How did it feel, uh, what, a decade and a half-ish, uh, having a band sort of play this pastiche uh, or loving homage <laughs> maybe to those yeah. sounds? What, how did that strike you at the time?
1: Uh, it it was great it was it was really great for me i mean it was it was wonderful and of course i knew xtc i knew andy partridge and you know we're we're still i, I suppose we're, we're we're best mates you know yeah. we still talk often on the phone and do those kind of things um so and any you know you know that xtc are wonderful musicians and very imaginative and i knew i knew more than anything it was going to be a lot of fun to do it you know and one thing is that people seem to think that we we gave ourselves restrictions or limitations like we would, we would only use vintage equipment and that kind of thing which isn't true really i mean we used 24 track we yeah. went to a a normal could you say a normal studio it was a little residential place and and we didn't purposely use vintage equipment we just wanted to make the music and it was all in the you know the 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 vintage sound was in in uh, the arrangements and the the, yeah. the sounds that they chose you know and andy andy's great at imperturb you know they're all are but andy's particular is great at impersonating people you know he can he can sing like um like John Lennon or Axel or Paul McCartney, you can sing like Axel Rose. He can sing yeah. like Lennon from Motorhead if you want. <laughs> Give him, a, you know, and and the same as Dave Gregory, he can he can get a guitar tone that sounds just like Roger McGuinn, or you know, and get the yeah. right notes. And and we were lucky because we had uh, Ian Gregory, who's um, Dave Gregory's brother. Um, who's who would, would play he wasn't a professional musician he played weddings and those kind of things but he was really great as well because they all they're all into the period and he'd tune his snare drum just right for mole from the ministry you know he'd yeah. get the Ringo the ringo tone or the electric prunes tone or something um and we worked fast, you know, we weren't going to get uh, bogged down in anything, you know, it was and they were shocked because they 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 were used to struggling in the studio, you know. Yeah. Yeah. They in um they were always the, the the thing about XTC is that they had a lot of pressure to have hit singles. Sure. You know, when they were with Virgin Records it was like Okay, go and write some songs for the album and they'd write 20 songs and the record company said, well that's no good there's no hit single you know i so, don't
0: i don't well, hear a single the the yeah. immortal words yeah,
1: yeah. so they they're always under a lot of pressure when they went in the studio and everything had to be you know perfect and yeah commercial and you know and of course xtc aren't aren't the most commercial band you know and they sure they were self-contained but at the same time they they wanted to explore their own talents and art and stuff but no they had a they had a great time with um dukes of stratosphere and they were they were shocked when we we were uh, you know when they said go and do another one go and do it again and, yeah. <laughs> and you know it's volume two and you know, if 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 they had their if Virgin had their way, we would we would we would have had four or five volumes. You know, <laughs> Andy was going to do live at the Cavern. You know, the Dukes of Stratosphere live yeah. at the Cavern, and, and the Bubblegum Years. He wrote a lot of songs for it, but it, it, then he went off the idea and didn't want to do it. He he's just written a song. He's actually going to. I don't know if I should tell you this, but he's he's going to have an album coming out, and it's what's it called? my failed songwriting career I think it's (laughs) because he'd often be asked to write songs or collaborate with people yeah I don't think he really collaborates I think it's like oh we need a song for the monkeys you know the monkeys you know they reformed or what was left of them right and he he wrote half an album he wrote six or seven songs for the monkeys and they used them but you know no one buys monkeys records now but and then they wanted a christmas album christmas with the monkeys so andy wrote 12 christmas songs for the monkeys and look can that's do all that. that's a
0: that's a great record the monkeys christmas record from a few years ago it's very very oh, good that's, that's andy yeah that's yeah andy very very good well you and you and i think that that you and andy started work on another album that I really love. I love Miss America by Margaret... uh, By Mary Margaret O'Hara. Mary Margaret Margaret
1: O'Hara, yeah. Yeah, No, we didn't start on it. That's how the Dukes of Stratosphere started.
0: So so you... But you two were in discussions to
1: do it, right? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, Andy... uh, I don't know if you know (laughs) (laughs) the story, okay? The story is that uh, Andy was asked to produce the record and he'd never met her. I I found Mm. out years later that I thought they'd met each other and been out and stuff or discussed and, you know, sat around with a guitar with the songs, but no, and they wanted Andy to do it and uh, she wanted Andy to do it. And he asked me to help out and I said, okay, but I was busy right up until the start date and they booked Rockfield. And what could I say at this time? Or just after this time, yeah, no, at this time, nineteen eighty-five, I was uh, I was a member of the Rajneesh movement. Now you might know of Bhagwan Sri Rajneesh or Osho, and I was in the commune, the yeah. Rajneesh commune. Uh, I, I did go to Oregon a few uh, a few times, but in England, I actually sold my house and all my belongings and took my wife and family, and, wow. and went to live in the Rajneesh commune, just like you see on that netflix wild wild country video and we went to oregon and things and i'd just come out of that you know yeah. i just come out of that and got back into the studio and back into working anyway it turns out mary margaret o'hara was quite a devout catholic roman catholic hmm. in fact one of the things when she booked the studio this rockfield studio she wanted to know where the nearest church was the nearest roman catholic church and that kind of thing and anyway andy um Andy went off to Rockfield to rehearse with the band and, um, the band weren't very, weren't that good, Andy said. And so he got his drum machine, he got his Lynn drum machine, plugged it in and got the band to, to rehearse to the, to the drum machine, which of course they hated, you know, Mary sure. Margaret. I was like, what's this, you know, um, anyway, um, the story that Andy told me, basically Andy phoned me up one day and said, oh, John, I've got to tell you, you know, we've been fired. You know, we're, we're, we're oh, off no. the record. We've been fired. You know, that's it. That's the end of it. The um Because Andy's drum machine. And um, the manager asked Andy what religion he was. And Andy kind of said, well, uh, Church of England, you know, I'm <laughs> like, yeah, uh, not a- what, religion are, what religion are you? And they said, oh, and what religion's John? You know, John Lecky, And and he said, oh, you're like John. He's very religious. He's just been in this Indian commune, you know, they do yoga and things. Uh, and the manager had heard of the Rajneesh Sanyasin thing, and they decided that, um, Mary shouldn't be uh, in the same room with someone <laughs> that belongs to a religion that encourages free love and sex and things and okay. sex therapy, you know. <laughs> so that's why we got fired. And uh, and basically, when Andy called me, I said, "Well, hang on. This was like this is like a three month job. You know, we were booked to do a whole album and right. recording, mixing, and everything." And I said, "Well, we've got to go back to Virgin and get some compensation," you know so andy went to virgin and virgin basically said well we can't give you any money for cancelling but if you want to go in and do some songs as xtc and andy said and that's where the dukes of stratosphere ah. came from really wow and yeah the money that and they you know i think i think they gave us five thousand pounds this was 1985. Yeah. they gave us five thousand pounds including my fee and everything um and we gave him four thousand and we only spent four thousand we we delivered the six tracks recorded mixed and everything and we did it and we gave him a 1000 pound change yeah <laughs> and i got like 200 pound for doing it you know well no but wonder they paid... asked
0: you to do another record they were like they went, these guys oh. were
1: cheap <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah we were cheap and we could ch- and of course it sold more yeah than their previous records i don't know the big express or whatever it was you know and it was cheaper to make and they sold more cuz once uh, and it came out on geffen geffen loved it you know in america yeah yeah um, so yeah, that's how that all happened.
0: Well, gosh, watching the Wild Wild Country documentary must have been very strange for you. I mean, I suppose that having not been a member for a while, you probably had some, you know, inklings that things weren't all great in the in the commune. But that must yeah. have been a strange
1: experience seeing that on the. Are you in the film it was, at all?
0: Yeah. Are, do you see yourself in the film at all?
1: No, <laughs> no, I've looked. <laughs> there were there was hundreds of people. I don't know if you've seen it, but oh uh, uh, yeah, no, I, I uh, have. I- and i yeah, and i, I and i've even is.
0: interviewed the musician uh, uh uh deuter uh who's also you know was also a oh member. yeah
1: german he's great yeah
0: oh yeah i mean incredible incredible music and some of the stuff he recorded for the osho foundation is tremendous music so yeah that's... he
1: did all the meditation music so all the different meditations yeah. were done to music yeah you know yeah. the the idea because Bhagwan or Osho, he he didn't think that, you know, modern man that we could, if we were going to meditate and become enlightened, we couldn't just sit in silence, you know, we had to have music playing. And it was what's called dynamic meditation. So it was kind of very active and jumping up and down and working up a sweat. And then there's a, what's his name, Gurdjieff, there's a stop meditation where you get very active and then whoever's lead goes stop and you, you kind of just stop and relax and it all goes quiet and silence. And that's when the meditate, that's the meditation, you see. But Deuter, Deuter, yes, did all the that music for the meditation. And they're still used today, I think, you know, yeah, those recordings yeah. done in India in the 70s, you know.
0: Well, another huge, huge part of your career is sort of the overall Britpop thing, where you worked with The Laws and then bands like The Verve, The Stone Roses, Ride, and of course, Radiohead. Um, now, I'm a huge Radiohead fan. And as far as I'm concerned, when it comes to the guitars, there is no better Radiohead guitar record than the bends, uh, And that is such a a, a testament to, to what you did. I was looking back and reading notes, and Johnny Greenwood says that he felt like you helped demystify the studio for them. And I thought that was such an interesting way to put it because... You know, you talk about looking for the magic, but it sounds like there's also a necessity to uh, let the magic happen without necessarily uh, imposing too much rules. So I'm curious, you know what what working with Radiohead, they were sort of dissatisfied with their reputation as the band that did creep. uh and i and i what 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 did you feel going into that record? What did you feel like your mission with
1: Radiohead was if you had one? Um, my mission my mission was well my first instruction was to do four hit singles to follow up creep with you know um, creep yeah. was happening as a, as a single and um, the, the the mission the instruction was... Radiohead had lots of songs you know they had I don't know 40 songs and my first I went to a gig and met them and we got on great and then the next meeting was in a rehearsal space in Oxford and in that room was um, the a people from Capitol um, they, they flew over the managers two managers the a r people in the UK uh, the band and me and the band played 40 songs and all fantastic well rehearsed and everything they knew what they were doing they Had all the parts and everything the tempos um and someone had to choose the single and so, of course they all look at me as the producer like <laughs> which one's the single and of course radiohead none of them are singles really i mean there was nothing that kind of jumped out as 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 a pop single number one on the radio kind of thing yeah um and so our instruction, we, 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 we whittled it down to four songs, which was, I think, Nice Dream, The Benz, um, uh, da, da, Just, and one other. There was four songs. I can't remember the fourth one. And they were to be recorded first. And at this time, every time they bought out a CD single, they had to have two or three B-sides. You know, and very often, I don't know if it was the same in the States, but CD single, they would release two versions of it, like a red version and a blue version. Sure. And they would have different B sides, you know, so it it made the fans buy both versions. Yeah. They
0: make you you buy the A side twice, but you get
1: another B side. Sure. Sure. That's right. Yeah. Just, uh, um, and so not only did we have to do four A sides, we had to do something like eight B sides and then we could start the album (laughs) wow and of course no one and we're recording and everyone's like what's a b-side you know they they don't have b-sides anymore you know you you, you ask a 20 year old what a b-side is and (laughs) they go what's a (laughs) b-side Sure. sure in those days you know a b-side was something that's not good enough to go on an album and certainly not an ace you know it's, it's not a very good song you know um and so that was our dilemma and our pressure was to get these four four a sites done and and also to do the b sites and so on um and and we did we went to they, we booked into rack studios which is in london really good studio where i'd worked lots of times before residential in london and um so the band lived there really i think we took weekends off. i think we took sunday off basically mm. it was a six day week and um and after you know a few weeks there, uh, I went off to Abbey Road and mixed the four songs that we had. Um, but there was a general feeling of, mm, this is you know, which one's it gonna be?" And just was really good, Nice Dream was good. The bends we hadn't quite cracked. Uh, and no one was really certain, you know, what the A-side what the was going to be. And what's funny, of course, is that what turned out to be the first single was My Iron Lung, which is yeah. the most uncommercial, unradio-friendly track. <laughs> yeah. You know, if you think yeah. about it, My Iron Lung was just what didn't they didn't have radio. It wasn't radio-friendly at all. Um, but that was the first single, you know.
0: yeah. I feel um, like i I remember maybe hearing high and dry occasionally on I don't but I don't know yeah it was it's not it's an interesting thing coming off of creep, which was this huge single the band it i mean you 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 worked with them you you were obviously much closer to the situation did you get the sense that they just they didn't want to be boxed into something like like the format of a give us a pop song even yeah, then
1: yeah I think they were. Well, I don't know. The word is insecure in the business, really. I mean, they knew how to deliver on stage and what to do. Right. But they were nervous of the record company. You know, they thought, oh, if we don't, you know, if we don't, Get this together. We're going to get dropped, and all this kind of thing. And then they didn't really know if they wanted to have a career. In, this is all what I found out after, of course, whether sure. they wanted to continue with a career in music. And you know, they hated the manager, and there was arguments, and all these things were going on as we were trying to get a performance and get Tom to do a vocal and these kind of things. Of course, yeah, he was spinning around in his head, you know. And it was things like as soon as we got in the studio tom and the whole band well not tom's kind of the spokesman really uh the one that uh puts the pressure on you know he says right we've got to find us uh, uh we've got to find a new guitar sound for johnny okay let's we've got a budget let's rent some guitars johnny what kind of what guitar do you want to rent i don't know <laughs> i've just got my i've got my telecaster and my fender and my my pedal you know and that's yeah. it I've, I've never used anything else you know so we got Rick and Becker's in and les pauls and sgs and all these kind of thing and fancy marsh lamps cranked up and and we ended up the whole record was done on the fender twin with the blues breaker pedal as a boss blues breaker and is um uh telly
0: so yeah so um, so all, all those guitars rented and he had to go with his Telecaster because that's the one that he that he wanted. That's him, yeah. That's what sounded that.
1: right, yeah. The extension of him, you know. That's what he does. Um, so things things like that, you know. We had a lot of uh, you know moving the drums around, ambient drums, close drums. You know the old snare drum tuning and yeah. all those things that would go on before we could do a take, and you know um, Tom getting frustrated and um, but what you know Tom. Would just work and work, you know. I mean, he'd be up at nine, eight thirty, nine in the morning on the, you know, on the piano. Yeah. Writing lyrics, writing new songs, you know, work, work, work. He'd be first in and last out always. Yeah. Um. Uh, and the the others always supported him. I mean, the they were, uh, you know, they were they a great brand, you know as because they're still at it they're still doing it today you know they're like brothers you know
0: <laughs> yeah and 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 have continued on to experiment in just in, in mm-hmm. you know incredible incredible ways yeah
1: yeah yeah and Nigel of course was the house engineer I'd done records with Nigel I'd done um uh ride just before this right and it's funny because there was this competition between ride and uh, radiohead because ride have been making records before and they're both from oxford yeah. so in a way radiohead looked up at, to ride um because they were successful and they'd been going you know radiohead were in the audience watching ride at gigs and things right um and there's me their producer i had to phone them up and because we overran on ride you know i had to say sorry i can't get can't start next week you know can we put it off for a month or something and they were really pissed off that you know because ride were and then and then there was this thing because we we use string quartet on some of the ride album that's called uh carnival of light yeah um and then i can remember tom saying we can't use strings because ride have used strings you know if sure, Ride have used sure quartet, we can't you know and it's like of course you can you know yeah so um yeah, there was always something going, something happening, some dilemma. I think with them, Nigel. I was going to say about Nigel Godrich. So Ni- Nigel was great, of course, and he was a tape op, you know. And because I'd been pretty busy, we got into the studio, and and I said, Nigel, you've got to, you know, do some take over from this because I can't because I used to do all my own engineering as well, you know. Sure, I'd, sure. You know, I do the balance and the EQ and anything that was needed as an engineer. And Nigel, of course, took that over, and then when I went off to Abbey Road to mix the potential four songs for the singles, um nigel they they did some more recording. They did Black Star and two or three other songs because everything was set up. all you had to do was press the button, really right um, which was great, and you know, and they stayed with Nigel, and they you know they love it he's part of the band, he's the fifth member now, isn't he? <laughs> yeah,
0: yeah. It was from,
1: great. From
0: a tape op to producer.
1: <laughs> yeah, just like that. <laughs> yeah.
0: Well, another 90s thing that you did that I found very interesting was that you worked on Spiritualized, Ladies and Gentlemen, were Floating in Space. You also worked on a great Dr. John
1: album. Uh,
0: I think Anutha, Anutha Zone is how you'd say that? Or... Another.
1: No, Another. Another oh, Zone. Another now another I get it. Another Zone. It's Dr. John's. That patois experiment. of his. Yeah, yeah. yeah another Zone.
0: Another zone. So, so, but Dr. John's on the spiritualized record too. Um, and, uh, were, were you the person who connected the two camps or was that in the work or how did that, how
1: did that come together? Um, I think, um, I think Jason, uh, did the Dr. John thing in America with spiritual eyes. So, so no, Jason knew that, but no, that came about because Dr. John never was, was unsigned and yeah. the head of A and R at Parlophone at the time, this is 1998, Tony Wadsworth, his name was, was a Dr. John fan. So he signed, he signed Dr. John UK um available for the usa but he never had a deal or anything dr john no one was interested mm-hmm. um and um part of tony wadsworth thing for marketing how are we going to sell a dr john record in the uk we're going to put him with a load of brick pop bands you know it sounds awful but this is what we did and sure. so part of the um part of the uh the the project was to get dr john He had the songs. Dr. John had loads of songs. You know, it wasn't a songwriting thing, it was a performance playing thing. Just to put Dr. John with Paul Weller's band, Supergrass, um, we tried to get Primal. Primal Scream, believe it or not, weren't interested. They thought it was a a record company ploy to make money. You know, it wasn't real. It's crazy
0: to think about because you'd think they would have just been.
1: Yeah raring to
0: go on that one but yeah
1: yeah and and what was interesting of course is what we wanted was a band we didn't want a keyboard player or a guitarist to come in and do a solo or something you know we wanted a band and dr john would play piano and sit and do one of his songs with them And it worked great with paul weller and um let's think some of the some of the other people and of course we mixed and matched musicians and did a few tracks like that and all in Abbey Road Studio 2, you know, no expense spared. And we basically were doing two songs in three days and a changeover, Um, and then we had a break at Christmas and uh, the plan was to go back in and still encourage Primal Scream to do something. Um, Not that Primal Scream are that good to me, (laughs) really. I mean, I couldn't really, you know, there might, I, I tried to get Cooler Shaker because Cooler Shaker, I, I i just worked with them they were great musicians and yeah. we we're after a good rhythm section really you know right um and uh we were going to come back after christmas and do some more finish off the record and dr john said no man you know we're gonna we're gonna finish it in new new york i'm gonna i'm gonna use my band in new york so come over to new york and we'll cut some more tracks which was great because i was it was dr john's tour you know i'm go yeah. from working with super grass or spiritualized to working with 60 year old guys from new orleans detroit in a band you know yeah. it's a completely different world at, at power power station in in new york you know and so half of the record is is his touring band and the other half is the the uk Britpop pop bands
0: <laughs> did did, did, was it you who who suggested the John Martin cover? I don't want to know. Did you bring that to no, the that, table, or was that something that that John had? That was had? Paul Weller. No, okay, no, Paul Weller yeah.
1: suggested that. Paul did. Paul suggested that tune.
0: Well, that's such yeah. an incredible song, and uh, and Doctor John. It almost sounds like it was written for
1: Doctor John when you hear him that's do it. Right, yeah. No, yeah. Paul Weller. As soon as he came in, he, he he wanted to do that. And, you know, and they rehearsed, they played a couple of gigs with Paul Weller at Dingwalls, a small club here, you know. Yeah. Um, yeah. And it's funny because I think Dr. John at the time was going through a, a dull patch. And of course, well, after that, I'm not saying that record was responsible, but in the last, you know, before he died, he was top. You know, people realized what his value was. Oh, Black yeah. Keith did that record with him. And um, I saw, I saw okay. yeah, I saw
0: him with Mavis Staples just a little bit before he passed away. A, a double bill, and talk about a double bill! Wow, you know. And you're exactly right. People understood. Doctor John is one of the greats of American music, you know. And and it certainly wasn't thought about as you know uh, as matter of fact as as we incredible
1: now... honor honor for me to to be doing it. You know some. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. London, some white london kid doing it you know <laughs> it was bizarre but as soon as we as soon as i met him he was friendly you yeah. know yeah I went to New York, knocked on his door. Hey, John, come in. You know, have some lunch. He was, he was always friendly. And then when they, when they toured over here, I got on the bus. I said, Hey, when you come on tour here again, I'm coming with you. You know, I got on the bus and paid all my hotel bills. Yeah. I just wanted to be with them all the time. You know.
0: Yeah. <laughs> well, uh, as, as exactly as I feared, we're not able to cover everything. But to close things out, I want to ask you about another one of my favorite records uh in 2005 you worked with my morning jacket on z and i was a big fan i loved it still moves and i had heard some of the stuff from before then z came out and all of a sudden it was like whoa this is different you know uh and 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 looking back and reading notes Jim James is very clear that he wanted it to be different. He wanted to take steps into new areas, to experiment with sounds, to to kind of deconstruct the idea of what My Morning Jacket could be. Uh, and, and I wonder, as a producer, is that sort of maybe your favorite thing to hear when a guy goes, don't worry about what we've done. Let's try something new. Is that a pretty exciting thing
1: for it you is, to hear? yeah. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, it is. Yeah. Depends on the songs, of course, because the songs, you know, on Z, some of the songs are keyboard things, you know, there's the um, uh, what's the opening track? I can't remember now (laughs) doing the keyboard. So wordless chorus. Yeah. Wordless chorus. Yeah. Um, Which, uh, which funny enough, he, he said was inspired by an Etta James song. Which had no words in the chorus. <laughs> she sang the verse, and of course, when she got to the chorus, she like da 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 da. She just scat sang over the chorus, and that's where you got the idea of wordless chorus. Um, yeah, a great time with them. They were re- it was really good and really friendly. I think I got the job because I met Jim in London when it was all happening or something, and. At the time, every, uh, Pro Tools were taking over. What year was this? It was 2006, I suppose, and everyone was Pro Tools. And Jim said, um, do you use computer to make records? And I go, yeah, sometimes, you know. He said, I see. He said, computer doesn't suit my voice, you know. I go, no, it doesn't suit many voices, (laughs) you know. He said, can we do it on tape? I said, sure, we can do it on tape. That whole record, Z, is done on tape, on 16-track tape. but never hit a computer till the mastering, really. Wow. Um, Wow. So it's all done on tape at Alaya Studios and mixed at Sunset Sound in LA, you know. Um, I, I loved it. And I'm also, you know, they're the three, I guess, American heritage things I'm proud of is... Is Doctor John, my morning jacket, and Lost Lobos? I did a record with Los Lobos, and to me, they are American uh, American music. You know, that's well, you know, yeah, other talking- than Muddy Waters and Howling Wolf and Chess Rev, Willie Dixon. You know, we can't get them. Let's have Lost Lobos and my yeah. morning jacket
0: you know every now and then on twitter i'll see like fellow music writers and critics like ask the question who's the most underrated band uh and every time there's just dozens of people saying los lobos los lobos los lobos they really are they really are such a tremendous group and uh and the interplay is so yeah that record which which record did you do with them
1: it's called Good Morning Axlan. Axlan.
0: Yeah. Okay. Okay. So that's yeah. kind of early two thousand or mid two thousands maybe as well. Two thousand and one uh, actually. Okay. It's two
1: thousand and one. And it's funny because it was right after September eleventh. I think we went in the studio oh, in October. Wow. Right after September eleventh. We went in studio and you know, I arrived in uh, in LA because we recorded at Caesar's house in East LA. I arrived in LA and everyone's flying the flags, you know, everyone's driving the car with the flags flying and the whole record Los Lobos we never talked about it we ne- yeah. <laughs> never had any discussion about yeah. about September 11 and Osama bin Laden and all that was going on at the time you
0: know are uh, uh, are they are they pretty pretty good dudes to hang out with did you enjoy just that that i mean you you said you did it at at a house so i mean it's clear that it was a pretty Nello. yeah in east,
1: LA, in east la and you know there's not much happening in east in east la and you know i'm used to hollywood but yeah <laughs> you know east la is a whole different world really it's korean or, Me- or mexican you know yeah um uh, so i was kind of cut off but it was great you know really good dave hildargo is just like he's the best singer and player really yeah um and they, yeah. but they've got such a a loose kind of attitude, you know. Loose attitude. Like Dave Valdago would say, um, you know, I'd say, hey, you know, we've we've got to start mixing next week, and we still need vocals on three songs, and he'd get, okay, I'll call Louis and get him to write the songs. Next day, Louis would come in with the lyrics. Dave go, okay, I'll do a take. First tape basically, you know, <laughs> got the voice and the mood. He's never, he's just first time he's ever seen the lyrics and he's he's got his tape down, you know. Yeah. And, um, and he'd go off, you know, I'd say, Oh, okay, that's great. David, come in and come in and have a listen. And hey, do I need to listen? And it's like, Well, <laughs> if you want to, you know, say, is it good? And I go, Yeah, yeah, it's great. It couldn't be better. Okay see ya. see you tomorrow <laughs> so it wasn't that he wasn't interested you know he would pick things out but they just have a such a comfort laid-back confidence about things yeah. you know yeah well that sounds
0: that sounds incredible and and as 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 suspected we're gonna have to have you come back and do another talk because I didn't even get to dig in with you about Mark E Smith. So we'll have to we'll have to have a whole episode where you just tell me what it was like hanging out with that guy. Uh, oh yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, well John, I appreciate you taking the time so much. Thank
1: you. Okay, anytime, you know, just email me and whenever whenever you you want to talk, we can yeah, do a bit I'd, more, you know. <laughs> I'd love
0: to. I'd love to. I learned so much. So thanks so much. I hope you have a good rest of your Sunday.
1: And you too. Thank you, you, John. Take it easy. Yes.
0: Thanks for tuning in to Transmissions. I'm Jason Woodbury. I write, host, and produce the show. Editing and sound by Andrew Horton. Sarah Goldstein makes our art. Jonathan Mark-Walls does a visualizer version of the show. And our executive producer is Aquarium Drunkard founder Justin Gage. Aquarium Drunkard is produced by heads, for heads. So hit us up on Patreon and help us keep this independent outfit going. We'll be back next week with a conversation uh, with Ricky Lee Jones about her great book Last Chance Texaco Chronicles of an American Troubadour. Uh, it's a great book. She's an incredible writer. So get a copy and read it and then listen to our conversation or uh, buy a copy after our conversation. Either way, either way works, I think. Alright, stay safe until then. Thanks for tuning into Transmissions.